Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. No matter what part of the world you're in today, one thing is for sure, you're going to spend the next hour in an absolute treat, a feast for your ears, listening to one of the absolute gods, the titans of industry, an advertising legend. Rich, can you tell us who our guest is today? Yes, well, yes, well, already on the show we've had OBEs, we've had MBEs, and we've even had a duke. But today we have our first sir by the way of Sir John Hegarty. Now, who is Sir John Hegarty, Dan? So Sir John Hegarty, for those that don't know, is a co-founder of uh, one of the most decorated and famous advertising agencies of all time, BBH. He was also a founding shareholder when Saatchi and Saatchi started up. He used to be uh, partners with one of the Saatchis that he'll take you through um, later in the episode and obviously talk about you know starting up uh, in that kind of environment, two of these young geniuses working together to create some of the creative advertising industry as we know it. If you've ever watched Mad Men, then this is definitely one for you. If you've ever had any remote interest in advertising, definitely one for you. And if you're interested in um, sort of a uh, an opposing uh, view on how to be creative and what to look for when running a startup, you know, such theories as uh, not believing in learning from failures and thinking that, you know, such lessons are a waste of time, then if you're looking for a different kind of viewpoint, this one is absolutely for you. So without further ado, I think we will crack on. Rich, can you hit record, press play, rewind, remix, whatever it is you, you do in the studio? Sure, let's get on with it. From Runway East Studios in London, welcome to the Secret Lives of Leaders. And so, recorded in the garage in Soho, welcome to Sir John Hegarty. Please uh, call me John. John, okay, so not, not Sir, not like no, we're in school. No, it's, right. it's lovely to have it, but you know, in conversation, we like John. That's fair. Okay, so uh, John, we usually start by going through the brand story and how it came about. Uh, we haven't actually had an agency founder on the show yet. Uh, for those that are not in the know, can you just start off by explaining why BBH was founded uh, what was its original purpose and what problem specifically were you trying to solve that wasn't being solved at Saatchi, for example? Well, uh, first of all, I, uh, I had left Saatchi and Saatchi in 73 and helped found the London office of TBWA. Uh, uh, and that's where I met my partners, John Bartle and Nigel Bogle. We were all uh, running that office in London. And uh, we turned that into a very successful office. Uh, it was winning awards, winning business. There was an issue around control and ownership, which we were not absolutely delighted with. Uh, we felt the ownership structure was not right. It didn't reflect our effort and our involvement. And we tried to negotiate with TBW and A uh, a, a different ownership structure, so, so we could be rewarded uh, more readily for what we were doing and what we were putting into the business. Does the TBWA stand for their names as well? Yes, that it does. That's very common in advertising, right? Yeah, so. it was Tregos, Bonong, Wiesendanger and Aroldi. And how, how long have that been around? Well, that was started in 1970 in Paris. Okay. Uh, and naturally, when they came to London in 1973, we suggested they just call it TBWA. Right, you are. Uh, it was actually a great concept. First European advertising agency since God knows how long. Okay. Uh, they had great ambitions for the brand uh, and what they were trying to do. But anyway, that's a, a, and it's quite a slightly complex 
story. If you buy my book, by the way, Hegarty on Advertising, it is all in there, so you can get it. Good plug. <laughs> Why well, not? I mean, advertising. Absolutely. For God's sake, I yeah, mean, yeah, advertising. Yeah, totally. Go so, anyway, so it, it was about really control. And uh, we also had a view that, you know, we had been evolving as a management trio with John Bartle being a planner, Nigel Bogle, account man, and me being creative, about how advertising should be developed, uh, conceived and executed. And, you know, we felt that that in the end we could do it better in a structure that we had set up rather than under the guise of TBWA. And, uh, and that was really the genesis of us starting the agency back in 1982. So being kind of obvious with what you're saying, um, you started a company because of ownership structure, which is pretty common. Um, yeah. Has that has that cycle uh, happened at BBH where you've sort of been frustrated to lose awesome people because essentially you get to a point where you, you become the problem that you set out to leave for? Well, what we did at BBH is I think we were we were quite generous with our ownership in that we spread ownership of the agency uh, to other partners quite rapidly. Right. Um, Recognise that. You know, the advertising industry is an industry of people. The better the people, the better the work, the better the work, the better the people, the better the work, the better, you know, uh, it's a sort of wonderful circle. And so we made quite a number of shares available for original founding partners who came with us. So we didn't want to repeat the problems that we thought TBWA had encountered, which actually I have to say was an incredible period. We had, there was no kind of, you know, in the end... We were great friends of TBWA and yeah. respected what they had done, but we just felt it wasn't reflecting what we were putting in. So we left. If I've done my research correctly, you went to Saatchi before that. Yes, it, indeed. In between the two, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I was you were a founding partner, partner right? In Saatchi and Saatchi. Yeah, 19... Well, what happened is Charles Saatchi, I, I joined advertising in 1965. Okay. And I so I, you know, I'm two weeks into my time there I'm a junior what you used to call a junior art director in those yep. days you were that and the then creative director came into my office of Benson and Bowles which is where I was or not my space actually it wasn't an office and so I found a young writer for you to work with because obviously we work as art director and writer I said oh that's brilliant I said what's his name and he said Charles Saatchi and I immediately went oh no oh god he's Italian lives at home with mum and can't spell. Oh, mm-hmm. just my luck. Well, I was right on two fronts, uh, but I wasn't right on the third one. He did live at home with mum. He wasn't yeah. very good at spelling, but he wasn't Italian. He's a, a Persian, aren't they? Indeed. Yeah. And, uh, but the more important than all of that is that he actually was a brilliant writer. Mm. And so I worked with Charlie for a, a, a period of time. And then at that time in advertising, because if you were a writer, you could accelerate very quickly through the ranks whereas an art director you had to learn about techniques and processes and screens and doing things and you were not given responsibility in the way a writer was so Charlie was able to accelerate fast so we split he went off eventually went to college at St Pierce then decided that he was going to leave and start a consultancy came back to me and said would I join him in the consultancy so that was 1968 and then in 67, and then in 1970, that consultancy called Krama Saatchi evolved into Saatchi and Saatchi. And then Charlie again asked if I would become a founding partner with him in that. So we had a long relationship 
uh, working together, which was great. But he was a fabulous writer, although, as I constantly say, wasn't very good at spelling. Yeah, interesting that. Um, I guess, you know, time... I think Shakespeare wasn't very good at spelling either. I'm sure a lot of people are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're probably not good with a camera in your private Well, time. you know, my drawing isn't quite up to um, Picasso standards. Um, I guess the question here is, uh, and if you don't mind my asking, so obviously Maurice and Charles, for anyone that's in advertising, very famous reputations, very different characters. Um Charles, especially very feisty, fiery character, and I guess as his career progressed, he's now become the pinnacle of the furiously angry yet incredibly impressive uh, dynamic ad man. What was he like when he was younger? Was he always um, so dynamic? How would you describe a young Charles Archie to work with? I I think he was very ambitious, which I think great creative people are. Mm. I mean, you don't do it to be ordinary, you do it to be extraordinary. You're not trying to create ordinary. And I think Charlie was, even at that sort of young 23, 24-year-old, uh, as a 23, 24-year-old, you could see that ambition. And I, I sort of, you know, I learned a lot from that. Um, but I always say, if you want to know what Charlie was like to work with, buy the Steve Jobs book. Uh, and when you read it, instead of reading Steve Jobs, just put Charles Sarchi in there mm-hmm. instead, and you've got Charles completely. Uh, but you know, a very, divisive character, very charismatic, very determined, very uh, clear about what he wanted to do, yeah. um, rightly or wrongly. And I, and I think there's a great lesson in life in that you know too many people are maybe. You know, Charles was definite, mm. um, and sometimes he was wrong. Yeah, so what? All right, you know, fair enough. Um, I guess uh, just quick question around creative agencies, the model, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because. Um, obviously a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interview here have very different business models because they're across a whole plethora of businesses. Yours, you're in the creative agency world. Um, I read somewhere when you started BBH, you know, you weren't able to afford the best directors. So instead of hiring great talent, you would, uh, hire directors and make them famous by the work they did rather than already famous. Did you have a different business model? How's your business model as a creative agency evolved? Or is the whole industry pretty much standardised and then based on you're only as good as your last campaign? How does it work? Well, we're still very much that. I mean, the agency world has evolved enormously uh, over the last sort of 10, 15 years. Naturally, digital technology has made a huge impact. Um, It's questioned the broadcast model of advertising, Mm -hmm. uh, naturally because... The digital world, if we can call it that, actually everything's digital, really. But anyway, if, if we know, we understand what we mean, um, uh, is sort of saying you don't you don't need that broadcast advertising. That's all a complete waste. Um, what those advertising agencies are doing is just indulgent. Uh, you can get your your potential consumer on a one to one, so you eliminate waste. And that's you know it's a very seductive argument to clients, but of course it. It, it denies the reality of how you build a brand. And I genuinely think today we have a world of marketing people who do not understand how to build brands. They've been brought up in the digital world. They think broadcast is a waste of time. And uh, they haven't understood how to do it. And, and I could argue, I could make an argument that, you know, we haven't seen economic growth with all this digital technology that we were promised 20, mm-hmm. 25 years ago, where is it, everybody? The only digital, the only growth we got was through the manipulation of the financial industries, and we all saw how that coming crashing down in two thousand and eight. So, you know, there is a 
misunderstanding of how brands are built today. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's impeding advertising agencies' progress. They've not been very good at being able to articulate what they do and why they do and why it is essential. Because really, you know, lots of marketing directors just aren't interested. That's true. Yeah, as get a lot of uh, performance-based rather than creativity-based and kind of missing the mark that the most profitable businesses are the most profitable brands. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're sort of in a world where everybody thinks it's all about the data. We now even call it big data, don't we? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just sort of, we rebranded it. Yeah. And, And of course, you know, as I've constantly said, you know, data is fundamentally important, but actually it only takes you so far. In the end, everybody's going to have access to the same data. So then what do you do? Well, surely the problem in a creative agency is, you know, you're obviously your famous thing about when everyone else zigzag. You know, yeah. you can't find a data point that will teach uh, some logic around a creative process because isn't the whole point to stand out. So if the data says, oh, everyone will, you know, engage with this, well, you're trying to make noise for a client. So surely you do the opposite of what the data says. Yeah. So well, do creatives have a sort of yeah. uh, odd relationship with data? They do indeed. I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, a lovely line that somebody said, I wish I'd said it actually, is that Picasso never had a business plan. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think what people forget... Well, just is, claim that was you. I could claim that. Yeah, that was I, John Hegarty. Yeah, I just said first. that. Yeah, yeah, very good. Picasso never had a business like plan. Um, but what, you know, what we're sort of, we're so obsessed with things like data, we don't become obsessed with what we're offering. And the point of a brand is to be different. You know, what, it's a, so if you all end up at the same place, what's the point in having five brands? You might as well just eliminate them all and have one. That's very make, true. Make life very easy. Yep. Um, but we, we have five different brands or ten different brands or whatever it is in a marketplace because it encourages competition. It encourages choice. Mm. And choice is what you know, we're, we're seeking because through choice we have competition. Because if you don't have that, then well, you might as well give up. So coming back to competition, um, you've just left um, MNC Saatchi. Uh, no, I was no Saatchi and Saatchi. Oh, Saatchi and Saatchi, sorry. Yeah, so you've yeah. just left Saatchi and Saatchi, and you've started up BBH with your new partners. Um, how did you win your first client? What was your competitive edge? Do you remember that sort of original process? Yeah. Do you... So just to remind people, actually, that I left Saatchi's in 73, mm. TBWA for eight years, left TBWA, started BBH. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so there we are. We opened our doors. And, you know, it really was a kind of, oh, my God, what have we done? We had this, you know, wonderfully successful business that we'd helped build with TBWA. And mm. here we are now with this. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, we had is our reputation. Our reputation did sort of go before us. Um, and what we had was this great belief that great advertising is created by brilliant strategic insights, uh, strategic understanding, uh, executed Uh, with brilliant creativity so that sort of the essence of what we were offering was great strategic thinking aligned to great creative execution in other words you know it's all very well having your strategy right if the creativity didn't capture people's imagination and vice versa versa, it was no point having great creativity if it was articulating the wrong strategy putting those two things together was to a certain extent, but there are other agencies doing it. But that was our big sell. That's what we did. And we said when we started BBH that we wouldn't do speculative creative work. In other words, clients would come and they'd say, well, I'm very interested in you pitching for our business um, and I'd like to see some of your ideas. And we said, no, we won't do that. And to emphasize, and we said we won't do that because actually what you should be doing is getting your strategy right. 
we will present a strategic we will we will present and give you some strategic thinking this is where the brand will go and once you work with us then we'll do the creative work beyond that and it was a way of emphasizing one our point of difference mm. and two that we really valued our creative work we just didn't bang it out it wasn't just something that you churned out for anybody and you know a lot of people said that was a recipe for disaster you might win one or two pieces of business but you won't grow very well and it was very important we thought it was very important this is this is so crucial if you're starting a business what do you believe in? You know, and that, that great line, a principle isn't a principle until it's cost you money. Yeah. And a business has got to start with some principles. And those principles, at some point in time, will cost you money. You can't be all things to all people. Having said all that, it's following your own, well, it's following your own doctrine anyway, which is everyone else says you zag. So if everyone else is doing those uh, processes and pitches and you say we won't, then you stand out and you have a reason why people go to you. Absolutely. And, and you know, so you, you realise that if you don't have that, you aren't distinctive in the marketplace. Yeah. So what we were, so we started and, and uh, it's, it's a lovely story, actually. Um, I had met the marketing director of, Audi, a sort of couple of years before we broke away from TBWA, and we were at a, an awards thing, and he was on the jury with me. And anyway, he decides two years later that he needs to have his business repitched for. He remembers me from, you know, creative director at TBWA. So he calls up TBWA and says, Oh, I'm Brian Bowler of Audi. I'd like to speak to John Hegarty. Because we're thinking of repitching our business. And the the uh, receptionist said, oh, no, um, John's left with two of his partners from here. They're, they've set their own agency up. At which point Brian goes, oh. Uh, and, and, and she says, well, don't worry. I've got their phone number here. You can call them. You so, must love that receptionist. Don't you just. So, yeah. lesson there, always be nice to the receptionist. Mm. You know, um, And that lovely receptionist um, you know, put us in touch with Brian. Brian called us explained that he wanted uh, us to pitch for the business long story short and we explained our principles and he was fine with that and we pitched against Colin Dickinson Pierce and uh, Saatchi and Saatchi and uh, we won the business because we talked about how you build a very different brand mm. for Audi. What kind of German were you going to be? What, what was that original Audi? Because the one that I'm, I, I recall being quite famous as the banker Oh, we way before that. Yeah, okay, was, I thought it would have been. Yeah. Uh, the, the two that we well, we made a slightly disastrous one to start with, but we went, no one go there. You always make mistakes. Um, but we well, we launched... it's quite interesting to go. So your your first, you know, because actually, yeah. audiences entrepreneurs that make mistakes. So yeah. so John Hegarty <laughs> when he starts up a BBH and wins this amazing client, the first one doesn't go exactly according to plan. No, it was sort of slightly ordinary, and we were trying to explain aerodynamics in a in a it was quite an interesting ad but it just didn't capture anybody's imagination sure it didn't break out of the mold in how, any how was the conversation with your client at that time and that's right because they were they were great because they said look you know we, we we all bought into this it didn't quite do what we wanted to do it's launched the car it did okay but it's not we want some magic yeah yeah and so you know we understood that and we said well you know sometimes magic takes a bit longer to uh, to achieve we went back in and and created the two ads that that um changed the brand and that was for again the aerodynamic audi 100 and the uh, rally quattro and one of them was called glider 
uh, and the other was called Marbella, how you can get to Marbella a lot quicker mm. with an Audi uh, 100. You don't have to keep stopping at petrol stations for fuel. And it ended with, of course, the classic line of, if so if you want to get on the beach before the Germans, you better buy an Audi 100. That's right. And then that's where we also then launched. And then there was a big question of, how do we link all these ads and everything that we're doing for Audi together? And uh, I sort of had, on a factory visit, always have a factory visit, um, I'd seen an old slogan that they used to have, and, and I saw it on the wall, and I said to the guy, shows, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, it's an old advertising line we used to have. We don't use it anymore. And it was Vorsprung der Technik, and it's just stuck in my brain. And so when we were talking then about how do we tie all these together, all these different things? And, what we, and I said, well, why don't we end each of the ads with, you know, Vorsprung der Technik? It's still there today, And it's still there today. And Barbara Noakes, who I was working with at the time, just added, as they say in Germany, and it became famous. And what's lovely about that story <clears throat> is that naturally they did a bit of research on it because they thought, well, we better do a bit of research. Research came back and said, whatever you do, don't use it. You know, people get very edgy about Germany and there's a sort of mm-hmm. love-hate relationship and we recommend you not to do it. Well, fortunately, Brian, Brian Bowler, and his lovely advertising director, Johnny Mazaris, both said, but we are a German brand. And actually, there was a benefit in that, in that <clears throat> Audi didn't sound very German, so mm. people were a bit unsure. Where did it come from? Was it Belgium? Maybe was Scandinavian, it, yeah. Was it, could be that. And so, of course, this firmly locked it as a German brand, but um, one with a sense of humour. So we ran it. And of course, the rest is history. That's brilliant. Another example of how creativity can't always follow the lines of data. Absolutely, and yeah, also got instinct and intuition. Research can be horribly wrong. Yeah, it almost it almost makes you feel like you know uh, you might be wasting your time doing research <coughs> on certain things. Like, it's so funny. You get the research, it gives you the answer you don't want, and so you decide to go with your gut anyway. Yeah. It just seems like an expensive. Uh, well. There are many great brands who, who won't do it. I mean, Nike doesn't do research. Mm. Um, you know, Steve Jobs at Apple wouldn't yeah. do research. Great example, yeah. And, you know, they built some very impressive companies. I think there's a tragedy today. Is there's a sort of reliance upon this because people are so risk-adverse. But life is risky. Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, ask people what they want and they'll ask for a bigger phone <clears throat> rather than more innovations or, within yeah. it, etc. The Henry Ford about, you know, if I asked people what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. Yeah, very, very true. Um, he's not alive today, sadly, to uh, do the interviews with, but we get his, we get his learning. <laughs> we get a bit of his the, wisdom. The more quotes you take from other people, and we'll just, uh, hey. just put them into a compilation of John Hegarty's famous quotes. Or it all gets back to Oscar Wilde, yeah. one or the other. That's Oscar Wilde. <laughs> or, so. or, or Winston Churchill. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, okay, so what's the most creative thing you've ever done personally or as a company to win a client? Well, I didn't. We never, we never indulged in those tricks. Mm. Um, some agencies did and, and did it brilliantly. I'm, it's not. It wasn't just our way of doing. It's not in your DNA. It wasn't in our DNA. It felt very forced to us. What we did was our, our biggest trick was to say we won't do speculative creative work, yeah. which people found, wow, wait a minute, hold on, you know, how can you do that? Mm. Um, but we didn't, we were very much, we, we loved the idea of playing serious and creative. So the strategy was very serious, it was very thought through, it was very cerebral, then the creativity was there to kind of express that in a way which captured people's imagination. Yeah. So 
you know, we were, that's the sort of agency we were. There was a, a great sort of, you know, uh, trend fashion for doing fantastic, amazing presentations. Sure. Uh, you know, people talked about it as theatre and stuff like that. And we, it wasn't our style, so we didn't do it. That's very fair. Okay. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, well, how about we just jump straight in and tell us about some of your favourite campaigns. <clears throat> so, go on, John Hegarty's top three favourite campaigns, and are they all conveniently from BBH? <laughs> well, if you're asking me about my campaigns, or campaigns I've worked well, on... You know what, let's start with your top three favourite campaigns ever, no, well, matter, no matter who it's from. So that will obviously yeah. include a couple where you're like, oh, I, wish I, I wish that was us that did that work. There must yeah. be that. Well, of course. I mean, I, you know, anybody from my generation and even perhaps later generations will quote the Volkswagen campaign done yeah. by Dordain Burmeck in New York in the early 60s. And that's I mean, another example of going to a factory, is it not? Yeah. I went to oh, the factory absolutely. and got the whole research of what to, how to innovate yeah. that brand. Yeah. And, and, but, you know, the daringness of that brand, mm. of, of the daringness of saying when everybody in America was thinking big, they said think small yeah. and they told you that sometimes their cars go wrong but actually they know how to fix them. And it had a, I think it had the sort of fundamentals of modern advertising in it. It was truthful, it was memorable, and it was desirable. And I, and I think those three things are fundamental for a brand. I always talk about that's my triangle. Right. You know, great advertising tells the truth. Believe it or not, everybody, if you're listening to this, its job isn't to lie. Its job is to actually to find a truth within the brand. So exaggerate that truth, naturally. Yeah. Uh, but do it in a way which is makes the brand desirable. And then execute it in a way which is memorable, because there's no point being desirable if you're not memorable. And I think 
for me, Volkswagen was the campaign. It, it created modern advertising. It still is just absolutely brilliant. So I, I genuinely wish I had uh, uh, had done that. I mean, there are so many great campaigns out there that you could go, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. Okay, well, that's the one that... That's the one I think. Okay, so what about your own three? My own... Well, uh, again, you know, I'm always loath to do this because you you, you sort of... I mean, obviously, Levi's was hugely uh, influential Mm. in that, you know, it it changed fashion, it introduced boxer shorts. um, And then obviously later on in the career, Flat Eric, which was number one and actually knocked Eminem off the charts. Absolutely, we we knocked Eminem off the charts. Do you not have a weird record of doing BBH own seven number ones or something like that? There is an incredible sort of list of number ones that we created. Yeah. Um, so that was a very influential campaign, uh, and, and I loved it, and it was wonderful doing that. But Audi, of course, Vorsprung der Technik, is, is there. But also a campaign that I, I sort of worked on, but uh, there were two uh, wonderful creatives I worked on with it, Steve Hooper and Dennis Lewis, and it was for Phileas Fogg. And um, Phileas Fogg made authentic snacks, yeah. um, you know, tortilla chips or California core chips or whatever they might be. And the traditional thing would have been to have um, uh, done things about the exotic nature of the products, where they were made and things like, or where they came from. That, And you'd always then have to put in the top right-hand corner of the TV, actually made in the UK. Mm. You see it with beer all the time now. Yeah, you, yeah. Know, yeah. you know, Foster's pretends it's Australian, but actually it says brewed in the UK. And so we thought, well... You know, going back to my thing about tell the truth, why are we doing this? Why don't we just tell people we're made in Medemsley Road, Consett, County Durham, which sounds very unglamorous. Yep. And and we turned that into a real value. And what I loved about the campaign, we did some wonderful ads for it. Eventually, they um, they sold the brand to United Biscuits, but because of the advertising, they had to keep the factory open in Medemsley Road, Consett, oh, County Durham. Yeah. So I help save those people's jobs. So that was a campaign that we were very, very proud of at at BBH. But, you know, there there are so many that, you know, uh, I I love. And I I sort of always go, there is an element of you're only as good as your next ad. Mm. And and you must always look forward in a way. So I'm never, no, I don't want to overdwell. It's too too nostalgic. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Okay, so... um... A little bit about you now, rather than the company, because, you know, obviously, as you say... Like, no, now it gets interesting. Yeah, now exactly. it gets interesting. Okay, so Thank God for look, that. Now, you, about, now, what about me? Yeah, about exactly. Me? So, um, obviously, this is an audio recording, so you can't see the very bright trousers that uh, Sir John has come in, and uh, apparently a matching jacket, too. That's uh, a tartan so, suit. It's the indeed. Murray a Murray tartan suit. I'm rather pleased with uh, that. Yeah. very appropriate as uh, interviewed yeah. by a Murray. Um, yeah, good. So, day in the life. What's a typical day for you nowadays? Well, I'm, I try not to have a typical day. I mean, obviously, I've uh, I'm based here. I'm still um, involved in in BBH, mm. but I spend most of my time here now at the garage. Can you tell us a little bit about the garage? Actually, yep. just as a good um, segue, because obviously, part of the uh, the huge coup in having you on the show is the very fact that you're running essentially an incubator, and in some ways, you're a VC now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I I think this is the best way of describing it. It's an incubator. Uh, so people come to us with their ideas and we try and help them build those ideas into businesses that become brands. And what we say to people is don't start a business, build a brand. Yeah. Because that's where value will lie. And it's amazing how many 
young entrepreneurs sort of think about the business, but don't think about the brand. And we help them guide them through that. But many do. Many do understand the value uh, of building a brand. And I, I think the exciting thing being in an incubator is, and I'll, I'll say something quite honest here, which is, you know, if you're in an advertising agency and, and you know, I was into my 60s and, you know, I was, I, I realized lots of clients who were in their late 30s, early 40s didn't really want me in the room. They wanted some 28-year-old who tweeted and twatted and yeah. did all that and yeah. you know, spent all their lives on that. And I understood it. You know, I understood in life that, you know, what you've always got to do is push at open doors. And so I sort of withdrew slightly and I guided and helped from the background. But what's interesting now that I'm in this incubator company, I've got these now 28-year-old entrepreneurs all desperate for the advice we can give them. Yes, because the experience that, and you can save them yeah. months, years, money, everything. Absolutely. So it's funny, go where your experience is sought. True. Don't fight against people who don't really want it. If they don't want it, fine. So go you're with. here most days of the week? Yeah, I, I spend most of my time here. I have a vineyard in France that I go down to mm -hmm. and we sort of walk around the vineyard and make sure the grapes are doing what they're doing. So I like doing lots of different things. Um, so a typical day would be sort of, you know, obviously I say I don't have a typical day. I do lots of different things um, would be coming in here. But then I'm on the board of trustees of the Design Museum that's course, just yeah. moved to um, to the old Commonwealth Institute and uh, uh, in Kensington. Please, if you get a chance to go there, it's absolutely fantastic. So I'm doing that and I'm working with a number of other people developing brands and being on the board of those those brands helping them grow so i i have a quite varied day as such but so i love yourself very busy i so. like being busy yes yeah. you know you get funny actually one thing you get people say to you because i'm now 72 and they say to me johnny aren't you going to retire and you, or, or, they, or they don't quite put it they say why do you go on doing it mm. and i find this very odd because nobody turns around to david hockney and goes oh david you know still out there painting on mm. why are you going on doing that or say to some musician you know you know why you know no you know dear well, old so you've still got fight in you and you find yeah. it fun and, and i think being engaged is really really important but obviously only if you're interested in what you're doing and i love what i'm doing i love being engaged i love being uh, around ideas seeing ideas grow helping them grow helping them develop it's really exciting so yeah. can i ask actually it's coming on to the age um i guess stigma is what you'd call it like just uh, framing it like that um what typical age are the entrepreneurs that come pitch you and you know is the the whole old adage of it's never too late to start do you ever meet much older entrepreneurs and just think you know what i back you because a experience b good for you like, i'm so sick and tired of well, seeing young entrepreneurs all the time or <laughs> well the one thing i do like uh, most of the people we see are young yes uh, we don't we don't have a bias we're we're just talking actually to a brand at the moment company at the moment with a very interesting idea who's who's being headed up by a guy who's in his mid-40s mm -hmm. it's about energy Energy is crucially important to driving a business. It's driving anything, really. Mm. And I think you find that younger people tend to have slightly more energy than older people. I'm being very descriptive here. Yeah, I mean, no, maybe I'm being a yeah. bit sort of, you know... Counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. You're pretty energetic yourself. Yeah, but, yeah. but I, I do think, you know, that's fundamentally important. And I think when you're 
younger, you, you're, you're more likely to try and do things to prove yourself um, and throw yourself into it and work, you know, 26 hours a day yeah. and things like that. So those things are vaguely important, but we absolutely do not have a kind of, you know, if you're over 35, there's no point. It's just we do look at the individual and go, is this person got the energy to drive this? That's fundamentally important. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, okay, you've said a lot of famous quotes, and we talked about that just before, obviously. So um, one of them, which I think is one of the best, and I have done some research, I'm not saying the others aren't any good, don't worry. <laughs> um, creativity isn't an occupation, it's a preoccupation. So where does this preoccupation come from? What is it about growing up that you think led you down your path of creativity? Do you see some uh, moment or some traits that led you there? Well, the first thing to say, of course, we're all creative. This idea that, oh, you're creative. We are all creative. That's what defines us as, 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 as human beings. Um, it's just that some people love uh, earning their living by it, by mm. doing it all the time. I, I'm... Out of interest, just to interrupt you. Have you read the book Sapiens? Yes, indeed, I uh, have. It's amazing. So that's basically, he brings all of Homo sapiens' existence and right to lead uh, based on our ability to create community yeah. and create myths, a.k.a. Right. creativity to bind communities yeah, together. Absolutely. It's brilliant. That, yeah. uh, if anybody, by the way, wants to read a great book, do read Sapiens. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It is it? just absolutely... Basically explains everything you it ever does. need to know. You, it's the only book you have to read. After that, you can give up. I agree. Reading. And John Hager to an advertiser. Well, there, there is that one as well, but that gets, you know... <laughs> but it's a, it's a wonderful book. So, essentially, we're all creative. But I, I suppose, in a way, I was just fascinated by ideas I loved ideas I loved being around ideas I loved talking about ideas and I then so I went to art school I went to Hornsey College of Art I was fortunate to have my brilliant teacher there a man called Peter Green who said to me he probably doesn't remember this actually but you know John you like ideas but I don't think you're going to be the next Picasso maybe you should go to design school where you can employ them a lot more and he suggested I go to the London College of Printing, which I did. I went to the London College of Printing and then studied printing and design there because I wanted to learn about printing as well. And uh, But the trouble with being at design school is I thought they all wanted to be artists. They all mm. wanted to go back. And when I started talking about ideas, they all, they all sort of veered away. Oh, no. I, oh, no. What's that? Oh, I don't like that. Oh, blank page. Oh, no. Um, you know, we just want to move the type a bit more to the left and maybe that shade of blue is better than this shade of blue. And I, I thought, well, those things are great, but I was turned on by ideas. Yeah. And um, and it was whilst I was there that I then met another brilliant teacher. I was a very lucky man, really, wasn't I? Called John Gillard, who then showed me the work of Dordain Burnbeck. And so here was I looking at this brilliant work from the 60s. I, this was like 1964. And he was showing me what they were doing. And I just thought, this is like having a light switched on in a darkened room. This is it. You know, it was smart. It was intelligent. It was witty. But it was also inclusive. Mm. It didn't exclude. It didn't include it. It used humour to include. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And so I was lucky then. I then created a, an advertising portfolio. And then went off and got a job and eventually worked with Charles Sarchi. So, so creativity is fundamentally important. So that's how I got to do it. I, I think that's... You know, that centre, the reason why that's an important quote, creativity isn't an occupation, it's a preoccupation. You're doing it all the time. There isn't a moment you go, you don't come into the office and just become creative. 
you know, you're walking down the street thinking about something. You're talking to somebody and the thought's going through your mind. You're, you're seeing a movie. You've gone to an art show. You've read this book. You've looked at that magazine. And all these things are going in and they're, and they're churning around in your mind and they come back out again when you're trying to solve a problem. Um, just a couple of things that made me think of as you were talking. So there's the old adage, uh, I don't know if you follow this at all when, you, when you're uh, investing in companies, but there's the old adage of, um, you know, the perfect founding team as a designer, a developer, a hustler. And I just remembered you saying about BBH, you had yourself a creative, an account manager. And a and, planner. Yeah, and a planner. Do you think that's essential in creating I, I, a great creative agency? I think it is, actually. I think partnerships are brilliant if they all bring to the table different skills and they also in doing that they don't try and do somebody else's job mm. uh it's a bit like a band so you not know, stepping on each other's toes that's right yeah. you want you know everybody in the band knows what you they want to do and they do it yeah they don't all want to be the lead singer and, 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 I, and i think that's essential so what about when you're investing like i said you know the hustler designer developer do you look at that or oh, do you, you definitely that's... yeah i mean i i you know we, we when somebody comes in we we go right is this idea disruptive is it going to disrupt the current business model is it scalable you know, can it grow and is it monetizable can they make money out of it you'd be surprised how many people come in with ideas and you say to them so how are you going to make money out of this mm. and they go well i'm not we're going to work on that and you go mm, that's not very good and then the other thing of course and you could argue is absolutely crucial do we like the people do we think this is a team that can really work well together support each other drive the business help guide you know that very trendy word, pivot if they have to, you yeah. know, it's got to change slightly. Can they do all those things? So that's absolutely crucial. So that's how we would approach it. But I think looking at, you could argue that the crucial factor are the people. Yeah. So do you have a formula or is it, is it just always mi- Well, we, 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 we pretend we have a formula, okay. but then we keep breaking that formula. Of course, formula, because then you meet someone who you meet really someone like, who, and you're like, oh, he doesn't have those, but you know what, it doesn't yeah, matter. Exactly, yeah. Um, any famous deals that have come through your doors that you've passed on that you now regret? Um, oh, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, funny enough, actually, <laughs> we... We passed on purple bricks, which oh, has become yeah, absolutely huge. And you actually, and settled though. So yes, we have. Yeah. Um, but t- to be honest, and I, I don't think they'll mind, but it was absolutely true. They, the, it was two brothers, mm. very interesting. We liked them. They came to us and they talked about what they wanted to do. And we thought this is really interesting. We'd love to do it. And then suddenly, one of the brothers decides he's going to leave. Right. And we go, whoa, hold on, what's going on here? So we, we sort of thought there's terrible kind of. Uh, something going on in the background we don't know about. There's going to be early family fights. Is there a feud mm. going on? And so we walked away from it. We were quite wrong, obviously, to walk away well, from it. I mean, but I think the right our, cut instinct, I'd say. Yeah, I'd say we were right on that. But hey, they've done incredibly well. He came back uh, and they've done unbelievably well mm. and are doing a brilliant job. So yeah, they you know, really are. One we missed out on. But yeah. hey, that life's like that. That does happen. Don't, you know, my big thing is also, you know, people often say about mistakes. Don't dwell on your mistakes. Sure. The whole thing about, oh, I learn from my mistakes. Ah, oh, you don't learn anything. So rubbish that. You know, especially if you're a creative person, you know, you say, do learn from your mistakes. No, forget them instantly. Yeah. You know, because what you're trying to do is you're always trying to push the edge of the envelope. Mm. Always. You're really trying to push it. And if you kind of, you know, your last idea didn't quite work out, you go, oh, God, that didn't quite work out. Oh, better be careful now with my next one. You can't do that. You've just got to go, no, 
in Move again. On. All in again. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're talking a lot about creativity, and I, I feel like maybe you know, there's uh, you know, you're like, well, you're creative every day, so we hope. Yeah, you hope. So it's kind of a irrelevant question, but do you, do you think it's a essential feature for an entrepreneur to be creative to demonstrate they have some creativity when pitching you, or? Well, no, I accept that they are being creative. They come up with an idea. Yeah, so that's kind of enough you for know, you. That's enough. That's, that's it. And that they are, you know. Do you think, do you think um, this is, for me, this is an interesting question for you, but at the same time, I'm looking forward to you saying, no, it's a pointless question. Shut up. Um, do you think creativity is underappreciated as an asset? And what I mean by that is, you know, you can get a doctorate. You can, you know, seven years as an architect and you've got a, like, a title. Uh, lawyers get titles. Accountants get titles. What do creatives get? Well, I think creatives get recognition. Sure. I do think it's unrepresentative. I do think it's unappreciated. Um, I think it's more appreciated than it used to be. I mean, I would say in advertising now, people don't really argue that they want creativity, although with big data, they think they can do without it yeah. at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, by and large, when I came into advertising, you had to argue for creativity and people thought it was an unnecessary, th- mm. unnecessary thing. And as, of course, the world got more and more competitive, you had to think more and more about how is my idea going to stand out? So therefore, you need you needed more creativity. Mm. But I think it's amazing today that we now live in a an economy where the government is now even going, you know, the creative sector is growing faster than other areas of yeah. the economy. Yeah. So it's recognized as a valuable asset within the economy. But I still don't think we have the appreciation that we ought to have for mm. it, that, that it has the value. Uh, it, it's not being sort of valued in the way it should be. All the people that ultimately do it. You know, a lot of, you know, I always say a lot of creative people get thrown out at the age of 40 or 45 and they're put on the, you know, uh, the rubbish heap and kicked out. And these are the people that have the ideas that can genuinely change the way the world thinks and feels. Mm. And I and I do feel that it's very unfair, whereas, you know, everybody wants an accountant. Yes. You know, look at our industry, how many accountants there are running of large course. businesses. Well, absolutely, and most CEOs are accountants. Yeah, training, so, it, so. It, you know, which is about measuring everything. Well, you can't measure everything. And even if you could, you would probably zag and say, yeah. get the research and do the opposite. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The really successful businesses are built with people with a passion for an idea. Yes. Uh, and those are the ones that make the, the huge differences. Um, so moving into the last section, we've got 10 minutes left, so we need to get through some of the important things as well. So um, obviously there's a big, uh, big debate in general around um, you know stress and overdoing it, etc., uh, etc. Et now... Obviously, asking you what work-life balance means today at 72 with a vineyard is a silly question. But in the (laughs) heat of you creating your own company, you know, BBH in the early days, talk to us about work-life balance then. And and how would you do it differently today? And do you you see different trends? Well, I think stress occurs when you're doing something with people who don't appreciate what you're doing and you're constantly fighting. I was surrounded by, I had two wonderful partners in John and Nigel. Um, we we supported each other. We were all on a mission together. Of course, we came across clients who were difficult. We came across people who were difficult. But actually, because we were together on this, we shared the burdens. Yeah, yeah. And I think you've got to put yourself... I don't think stress occurs when you're in an organisation that supports what you do. And appreciates you. And appreciates you. I, I think then, you know, you can deal with that stress. Where you can have stress is when you're you're fighting... 
a lonely corner, knowing that what you've got to do is is right, and you're dealing with people who don't support you, then I think that will be very stressful. Uh, quite a common thing in creative advertising, if I'm not mistaken. You, you are very, very sure your idea will be bang on correct and everyone else disagrees, and really it's up to chance whether you were right or they were right in a lot of these circumstances. Yeah, and I, I think for creative people that's where it's hard. I talk about mm. it, it's, t- it's tough for creative people. I mean, you know, if you're a, you know, a, a, a strategist, you're a planner, you, there are a huge number of agencies you can go to and you can be really, you can learn a lot from them, you can have an influence, you can have an impact. For creative people, there are very few good creative agencies where they can be appreciated, where they can be uh, given reign to do what they want to do yeah. with guidance and, and help support. and support. Yeah. And, I, and so I think it's very difficult. Um, do you meditate or practice anything similar and have you ever... Are you into any of that? No, I'm not. I, I, lots of people say, you know, it's really good. I'm sure it is. Yeah, but but I love to. I, know, I don't need to. I love thinking about ideas. I yeah. find that the kind of meditation I want. I, I love it. I love that. So the idea of clearing your mind entirely to come to a greater clarity to you doesn't really work because at the end of the day, consistently churning out ideas in your head is more, is yeah. more useful. Well, I often say, you know, I do my best thinking when I'm not thinking. Mm. But I walk in, I live in Clerkenwell, and I work in Soho, and I walk in every day. And I love that sense of just, I'm walking in, I, you don't put earphones in. Mm. You know, too many people, creative people, walk around with earphones in, thinking, hey, it's cool and groovy. Yeah, I love music. But actually, you're you're cutting yourself off from all these influences out there. You see something, you hear something, you hear somebody, a little snippet of a conversation. As you walk past somebody, you say, I'll use that, I'll get mm. that, I'll do that. And... You know, creative people have got to be open all the time. They've got to be constantly aware of what's going on around them. Interesting. As soon as you put the earphones in, you're cutting yourself off. So open your senses to everything around you to get your inspiration from. Definitely. Okay. Um, are you a glass half full or half empty kind of guy? Well, I've always described myself as cursed as an optimist. Right, um, okay. And I think in a way, I think great creative people, I'm not saying I am, but I think great creative people are optimists because you've got to believe that you can change the world. Yeah. You've got to believe that this idea is going to have an impact. You've got to believe that it's going to be the thing that you want it to be. And conviction in your And belief. conviction. So if you don't have that, then, yeah. And if you don't have it, why should anybody else? So, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I feel like I know what your answer might well be, but... Um, <laughs> don't, you never know. Exactly. But, no, but, but based on me listening to your answers in the conversation rather yeah. than uh, just, just taking a gander. But... Um, you know, key to entrepreneurial success in general is learning from failures along the way or at least recognising them and, and, and growing from them. So where you've discussed previously was, you know, you don't learn from mistakes, you just, you know, go all in. But um, everyone has failures. And, you know, the important thing as an entrepreneur is how to address a failure and how to not let it affect you and how to just push in and move on. So are there any big moments that you remember from your career that, you you know, at the time felt like the end of the world was a big failure, but ultimately just led to you being more successful at the next round? Yeah, I think I, I would explain that whole thing with failure. I think if you're, say, if you're a research chemist or scientist, or whatever, then I think dealing with, you know, why that failed and examining it and looking at it is probably of value. Yeah. I think... With that is on- their process. Yeah, with, a, with an entrepreneur. Probably looking at, that didn't work, why didn't that work? Now, next time I'll do this, make sure. Maybe I didn't have enough finance in place. So I, I look at, I look at sort of failure in the, cre- I've, as I've said, in the creative world, I don't think it's something you could look at. The other thing I would say, and I'm going to answer your question slightly differently. Okay. Don't look at things... You know, people say to me, what are the worst ads you've ever done? Why do you want to dwell on the worst? 
you know, surround yourself with great things and it will rub off. Mm-hmm. Why spend your life looking at things that aren't great? Now, Cursed you can, as an optimist. Yeah, well, cursed, but you can, you can argue that's slightly elitist. Yeah, it is. But so what? I Absolutely. want to do great things. I want to stand on the shoulders of other people who've done great things. If I look at something that was slightly shite, what's the point? You know, the world's full of it. I okay. can walk out the door here and see shite all over the place. I want to look at great things, but it'll be inspiring. Okay, so speaking of inspiring instead, and uh, a very valid point. So who, who have you looked up to along your career? Like who are the, do you have different um, people that you look, look up to now you're in the entrepreneurship environment rather than when you're in the big brand environment? How's that well, evolved? I, I've loved people like um, Ferdinand Pieck at Audi, who great, great, part of the Porsche family, a lucky start in life, but really changed the way Audi was perceived in terms of design. Um, I love people. I I don't tend to look at other people in advertising. I try and look at, not because I don't admire them, but but I tend to look in industries aligned to advertising. I I assumed you would. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think you learn lessons from that. I mean, uh, and I, I now know him very well, Kenneth Grange, who is a fantastic product designer who's done... You know, the London Cab, he's done all sorts of the uh, 125 train for Intercity, you know, brilliant, brilliant designer. You learn from, or you learn from somebody like David Hockney, mm. you know. I mean, I've just watched his brilliant, it's on iPlayer, it's just called Hockney, two hour documentary on him. And you realize what he's doing. And from that, you learn that he's, he's exploring all the time. He never stops. He never, he always inquires. He always asks why, mm. why are we doing that? Why is that like that? And he's prepared to move on. He's not going to stay in one place. And I find things like that really inspiring. Spend more of your time focused on the inspiring yeah. um, people around you to build yeah. your own Absolutely. story. That makes sense. What, what is the best, um, best piece of advice you've ever been given? You must have been given a lot. Um, I, I was. Uh, the best piece of advice I was given, and it was very, very early on in my career, and, I, and I'll quickly tell it because we're running out of time. Sure. That when I had my first job, I, I, I was leaving uh, design school, and I was offered two jobs. And one was at Weinar, uh, and they were going to pay me £2,000 a year. Now, I know this, you go what, but this was 1965. The other job was at Benson and Bowles, and they were going to pay me a thousand a year. And I said to a, a very old, a very good friend of mine at the time, Doug Maxwell. I said to Doug, oh, "I don't know, Doug, which one I should take." And Doug said to me, "You know, John, uh, this great uh, New York art director is just going to Benson and Bowles. I think I would go there, even though it's I'm going to be paid half as much, half as much." So I did. I followed that advice. I went there. And, of course, as I've already told you, within two weeks I met Charles Saatchi, mm. and that had a transformative uh, effect upon my life and my career. Now, had I followed the money, I'd have gone to y yeah. and God knows what would have happened. Yeah. So my advice to people, great piece of advice, is you know, money's a tool, not a philosophy. Don't follow the money, follow the opportunity. That's brilliant. And I guess, you know, is that, is that your, your piece of advice you'd give to listeners as well as the piece you've received? Because quite often they're different. But I think in your circumstance, it mm. makes sense that yeah. you, know, you amalgamate them as, yeah. as one and the same. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you, in, throughout my career, I've always looked at the opportunity. Yeah. And, and then the money has come. So, you know, yeah. But if you make money the goal, then you'll have a very short career as a creative person. So 
Just my... proving I can learn from my own uh, my own mistakes in this scenario. Um, instead of asking the last question, which was, if you could do it all again, what would you do differently and why? To which you would say, absolutely nothing, because why dwell on the past? Absolutely. There you go, learning. <laughs> I, would, I will instead ask, what's next? What other stuff do you have on the um, horizon? You're obviously here in the garage in Soho, and this keeps you well, busy. But any other plans? The, the other thing I will say is, I, I don't have... I have a five-minute plan. I don't have a five-year plan, mm. because... You know, five years ago, I never, I never thought I'd be doing this. Yeah. I never, I didn't know. It was only because an old friend of mine. We started doing things together, and we sort of talked about it. And wow, why don't we do this? And let's set up this, and we can have an incubator. But so there was no plan to do that. We just, it evolved. And I think there's a danger in over planning. As I say, you know, I don't. I, I, my other little motto is do interesting things, and interesting things will happen to you. And I, and I'm a great believer in that. That's very valid and a great way to leave uh, the listeners. So thank you very much to Sir John Hegarty for your time. And um, I believe we've finished right on time as well. So thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that uh, pretty fine episode listening to one of the most famous and decorated men in all of advertising, Sir John Hegarty, who very fortunately when we sent him over the edit said, Dan, I've never ever listened to a recording of myself in my life and asked for changes. I'm not about to start now. So you've just benefited from a whole hour uninterrupted and unedited of the man and legend that is indeed Sir John Hegarty of BBH. Rich, who have we got next week on the show? So next week we have another MBE uh, by the, one of the halves of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Tamara Lorne. Um, and she has a great story of how she started uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith with her husband, James Lorne. And um, yeah, going through the whole story with that. It's a very interesting business. And uh, yeah, it's a really, really interesting story. So And a fun fact, a fun fact from uh, Tamara. She now listens to The Secret Lives of Leaders as one of her favourite podcasts for running. So if you've ever wondered when you can actually fit in listening to us, then uh, we highly advise you follow her lead and just, just, you know, do it during exercise. Apparently, this is energetic enough for most people. Yeah, and you can subscribe to us on all the usual channels. So that's YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing us at hello at secretleaders.com. And if you want to see all of the past episodes, any any information about them, and if you, or if you just want to just download them, then go to secretleaders.com and it's all there. So next week, we will join you with Tamara and Dan and have a good one. Yeah.